And just remember, it's not falling apart, it's falling into place. And we remember Jesus is coming again. His will will be done. He's not forsaken a single one of His children ever yet. And He's not going to. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to try to move quickly here this morning. As sometimes is a struggle for me. But this morning we're going to talk about John the Baptist, the doubter. John the Baptist, the doubter. Matthew chapter number 11, I'll give you just one moment to get there and then we'll look at this text here together. Let's have one more quick prayer. Lord, please help me as I preach. May your Holy Spirit move, encourage our hearts, speak to our hearts here in your word this morning, not because of me, but because of you. Please give me the words to say, control me with your Holy Spirit, and may your word return not unto us void this morning as you promised it would always accomplish its purpose. We love you and we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 11, let's jump right into the text this morning. Verse number 1, and it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples. He departed thence to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John had heard in prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. And he said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? This is John the Baptist, one of the greatest servants of God in all of history. We'll see in the text this morning, Jesus Christ records a commendation and a praise for John that is perhaps not equaled by anybody else in all of the Scriptures. But we find him here after the mighty days of his early ministry, sitting in prison, and he sent two of his personal disciples to ask Jesus a question in verse number 3. Art thou he that should come, or do we look... For another, He that should come is a very specific Old Testament prophecy, New Testament fulfilled by Jesus, when John turned and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. He was the forerunner come to prepare the way of Jesus Christ to say He that should come meant the Messiah. It meant the Son of God. It meant the Isaiah 53 character who would take away the sins of the people, die for their sins, and all those other texts like Zechariah and Psalms where it says that He would sit upon a throne in Jerusalem and reign over all the earth. And this mighty servant of God is left here doubting, and he questions, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Or did I get something wrong? And are we supposed to look for someone else to come to be our Savior? Let's flip back to John chapter 1 quickly. If you want to keep up with me this morning, we're going to flip around the Gospels here. John, Luke, Mark, and Matthew... And we'll look here just a couple of selected scriptures in John chapter number 1 that are the early fulfillment of the ministry of John the Baptist. And if I stop talking and turn, I'll turn to the right place and turn it backwards instead of forward. John chapter 1 and verse number 19. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Something was going on in the wilderness. We'll look at a verse in a moment where it says that the multitudes came to hear John the Baptist. He was a wild man. He was a prophet. He was the the kind that wasn't afraid to look anybody right in the eye and preach the truth of the Word of God to them. 
people came. And oftentimes people come, sometimes to seek the truth, sometimes to see the show, sometimes just out of curiosity, sometimes to gather the facts and to report to other people who are against what's going on. But he began to gain notoriety, and the priests and the Levites sent people from Jerusalem out to the wilderness to this guy who's garnering all this attention and preaching, Behold, the Lord is coming. Behold, the Lamb of God is about to appear. And they asked him and said, Who are you? In that verse 21, they said, Are you Elijah or are you that prophet? We'll read here in a little bit. But at the very end of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, God promised that before the day of judgment, the great and terrible day of the Lord that was coming, that He would send Elijah the prophet. And they were aware of that prophecy. That's why they said, Are you Elijah? Then they said, Art thou that prophet? Moses also prophesied of another prophet that would come that would be like unto himself. And whosoever would reject that prophet, God would reject. That was a prophecy of Jesus Christ. But John the Baptist was perfectly happy to fulfill his role. He said, no, I'm not Elijah. No, I'm not the Messiah. I'm simply here to point you to him. And isn't it a wonderful thing that we all have a different position in the service of God, but we all have the privilege of serving Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And if we ever get to a place of notoriety where people begin praising us for our talent or us for our spiritual abilities, and they say, how do you do that? Or you're a blessing to me. We then have the opportunity and the privilege to take the focus off of us and point it back up to Jesus Christ whom we serve. He said, I- I'm telling you plainly, I'm not Elijah. And no, I am not the Messiah. Well, who are you then? Verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse number 3 is the verse that he quoted when it said one would come who would not be the Lord, but he would make straight the way of the Lord. He would prepare the way of the Lord. He would be the forerunner. He would announce at the end of this long chain of all the prophets here, giving us bits and pieces and shadows saying, He's coming, He's coming, He's coming. John the Baptist would have the privilege to stand up and say, He's here. He's right there. It's God. He said, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. Look down to verse 29. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. All of those Old Testament prophecies, I'm I'm sorry, yes, the prophecies, but also the sacrifices were in themselves prophecies. They said, you're a sin, you've offended God, you have to take a spotless lamb, bring it to the priest, and he will go offer it to God, and blood will be shed as a payment for your sin. But you see, the book of Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and of goats could never take away sins. It was all pointing to the blood of Jesus Christ, looking forward to the cross in shadows. As we now look backwards, to the cross in the sunlight and know more in full what they knew in part. But he said that lamb represented something that had to die and it represents Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And I believe it's in 1 Peter where Peter said he is the spotless Lamb of God. He has no blemish. He has no sin. He is perfection but He will be the sacrificial lamb for your sins. Verse 30, This is He of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for He was before me. Doesn't matter who came on the scene first. Doesn't matter who was born first. Jesus Christ, He came into Bethlehem, but He was of everlasting before the world ever was. If you want to know more about that, just back up to John chapter 1, verse 1 through 12. By Nothing was made that by Him was not made. He had glory 
with the Father before the world ever was, before there was an earth, before there was a mankind, before there was a heaven, before there were angels, there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. John was eager to turn around and say, no, no, take your eyes off me and look at Jesus who I am come to proclaim. John chapter 3, as I said, several selected scriptures here in the Gospels. John chapter 3 and verse number 27. John answered, this again is John the Baptist, and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Verse 28. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy is fulfilled. Who is the bride of Christ? It is the church. And John said, no, that's not my bride to profit off of. That is the bride of Jesus Christ. And my joy is fulfilled in the fact that I facilitate people coming into the kingdom of God and getting saved. Then he sums up perhaps his life's work in verse number 30, which would be a great theme verse for any life or for any ministry or for any family. He must increase, but I must decrease. Just don't forget as we serve God, it's not about us. It's not about our respect, about our notoriety. It's about Jesus Christ whom we serve. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 and verse number 3. Here in this text, we get a picture of the popularity that John had. As we saw in John chapter 1, he got so popular that they sent people out from Jerusalem to question him. Luke chapter 3 and verse number 3. Saying of John, And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse number 6, let's skip to, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh who saw Jesus saw salvation manifest. The opportunity to escape judgment, to escape hell, and to commit sin was seen in Jesus Christ. Verse 7, Then said he to the multitude. Just notice, the multitude. That's how popular he was. That's how much his ministry was prospering and people were coming to see what was going on. And he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. We'll see from what Jesus said in a little bit. But he, it's said of John the Baptist that he wore camel skins and he ate wild locusts and honey. In those days they would take the locusts and take the wings off of them and fry them up and combine it with honey. And that's what you would eat if you were this, this uh, rough traveling wilderness type of a guy. That's the, the life that John the Baptist lived. And when he preached and by the way, God gives all kinds of different preachers through all kinds of different styles and nobody has to be be like one or another. God called me to be me. And I have a hard enough time doing that. So if I try to copy somebody else, I'm going to get in trouble. But John the Baptist was the kind that looked straight at him and he said, you generation of vipers, meaning snakes, who shall warn you to flee from the wrath to come? He looked right at the Pharisees and the religious leaders and he called them out on their sin. Might have been the kind of meeting where they said, well, did you hear what John the Baptist said? And you won't believe what he said and to who he said it. And people came around because he was that kind of a rough voice for God. And as he did it, his ministry prospered and the people all came to hear what he had to say. Look down to verse number 16. And John answered, saying unto them, I indeed baptize you with water 
but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. If I get it correct, there's so much arguing, but if you receive Christ as your Savior, that's the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He indwells you. If you reject Him and you die, that's when you're baptized with fire. Jesus is a dividing line. He doesn't give us the opportunity to remain neutral. He says, you accept Me as Lord and Savior is the only way to heaven, or you reject Me. There is no middle ground. Verse 17, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner. But the chaff will he burn with fire unquenchable. But by the time we got to the text in Matthew chapter 11, there was a much different time of his life going on. This man who was rough and gruff and preached this message and the crowds just swarmed to hear him. It said, remember in verse number 2, he was in prison and had to send a message to Jesus to express his doubts and to try to get the answers because he could not go himself. Why was he in prison? Look at verse number 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. Mark chapter 6 is the one other place we'll turn before we return to the sick, to the, uh, to the text. Mark chapter 6, notice that it mentions one specific sin there in the text, but then it also says, and all the evils that Herod had done. Who was Herod? He was the king. The king is the guy that commands the soldiers. The king is the guy that if he says, throw this guy into prison, he gets thrown into prison. Even in the Proverbs, I think it says, take heed when you go before the king and be careful what you have to say. Entreat him. But the Bible also calls the preachers and prophets of God to preach the truth, to call out sin to say what God says. And there evidently was a time when John the Baptist came and got to face to face confront Herod and he confronted him for all the evils he had done, holding nothing back, but also pointed to one very specific sin. You can preach against sin in general and it's okay, but when you preach against specific sins, like sins that people might actually be doing, that's when it starts to get a little bit more dicey as far as how your message is received. Mark chapter 6 and verse 17 spells it out a little bit more clear. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, okay, so not through a message, but the indication is directly to him. He said to Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. That's a sin. That's wicked. So Herod took him and cast him into prison. Why was John doubting? A couple of different explanations that we could look to, perhaps. The first one is maybe that he was in prison. He was used to the fact that he lived this life of being in the wilderness. You know what's in the wilderness? At least it, it may be hot, you may lack, you may have to bring supplies, but it's open skies. It's open plains. You get to feel like you're not fenced in. But now because he's preached to the king, he goes from the wilderness with multitudes hearing him. His ministry being blessed in a way we would pray... Lord, what if I, we start preaching and then just thousands of people come and we got to find a bigger place to meet. Lord, please bless us. He got all those blessings. 
But because he stood up to the king and preached the truth, now his followers are not there. He has some disciples, but he does not have a crowd to preach to. Now they're following Jesus, which he was all about, but now he's in a dungeon, which some think that, some say that certain historians think they know the prison where John was thrown, where Herod's enemies would have been kept. And it was a dungeon, it was a pit where there was no light. And he sits in the darkness with his own thoughts. Perhaps depression started to kick in. Different points in the Bible, we see David expressing in the Psalms what in modern days we would call depression. We see Jeremiah in Lamentations weeping and crying out to God. And David in the Psalms talking about his pillows, his tears coming upon his pillow all the night long. And God hears those cries. God sees that. God knows that when there's something wrong with us that's maybe not physical that other people can see, but that is spiritual, that is mental, that is emotional. Jesus cares about us when we go through those things as well. And his thoughts perhaps began to get away with him and he said, something's not making sense. And this is perhaps the other reason he doubted was Jesus actually God and the Messiah was unfulfilled expectations. Unfulfilled expectations can be some of the greatest enemies to happiness we can ever have in our life because we get a picture of what it's going to be like when I get to this stage in life, of what marriage is going to be like or what it's going to be like when I get a better job and what it's going to be like when I have kids. And then sometimes we get there and what we built up in our mind doesn't really match reality. So expectations are our enemy. But why do I think perhaps he had some unfulfilled expectations? Because as we look at that Old Testament prophecies of Jesus coming, there was a bunch of prophecies like Psalm 22 that said he would die. There was prophecies like Isaiah 53 who said with his stripes we are healed. He would die for our sins. But there's also a ton of prophecies, like in the book of Zechariah, that say that the Messiah, his feet shall touch the Mount of Olives, and it's going to split in two. And he's going to walk across the valley, and he's going to take his throne, and he's going to reign and rule over all the nations of the earth, and they will come in and out and bring him the gifts and 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 offerings unto Him and He will judge His enemies and He will deliver His people Israel from their oppressors. So we look forward to prophecy like the rapture and the tribulation and, and say, well, where's the verse where it specifically says there's a rapture and then at the end of the tribulation, Jesus is coming to the earth with His disciples. There's not one specific text or verse that spells it out, but there's a whole bunch of texts that say, look to the sky. He could be coming today. He could be coming tomorrow. And then there's a whole lot of verses that talk about specific things like halfway through the tribulation the Antichrist will go into the temple and proclaim himself to be God and say you have to worship me in my image you have to get the mark of the beast in your hand or in your forehead or else you cannot buy or sell and I'm going to behead you and then at the end of the seven years Jesus will come with all the armies of heaven he will set foot upon the earth defeat the Antichrist and rule and reign for a thousand years so you have to look to different texts and piece them together and what I believe with all my heart, is there is a day that is unknown, whereas the midnight cry, behold, the bridegroom is come, as it says in Matthew chapter number 25, and as the Apostle Paul described, those of us which are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet them, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The Apostle Paul said there will be a generation of Christians who do not die, but rather which are, quote, alive and remain, and they are going at an unknown hour up to the clouds to be with Jesus and then at a known hour at the end of the tribulation we're all coming back down and that's when Jesus defeats his enemies so in the Old Testament they looked and they couldn't put together perfectly exactly 
the fact of the way God was going to do it, which is how God in His sovereignty chose to do it. And that is Jesus will come, He will lay down as the Lamb of God, die for your sins, go back to heaven, and there will be an interlude for an unknown specified amount of time. And then when I say it's time, I'll rapture my church, and at the end of the tribulation, I'll come back to earth and rule and reign. He fulfilled a bunch of those prophecies the first time as the Lamb of God to take away sins, and He'll fulfill the rest as the Lion of the tribe of Judah that comes not to die, but instead to conquer. But his disciples didn't know that yet. And as a matter of fact, they asked him so many times over and over, when are you going to go knock out Caesar? What about Herod? What about John in prison? When are you going to drive out these Romans who are oppressing us? When are you going to fulfill all the prophecies about you being the king that rules and reigns over each and every one of us? And he kept trying to tell them, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And I'm going to raise again. And they missed it. They weren't there at the tomb when he rose again. And at the time of the Great Commission, Jesus, we talked about in Sunday school, after He rose from the dead, He was seen by many in His glorified body. He spent a lot of time with them. And He goes all the way out and He's ready to ascend to heaven in Acts chapter 1. And the disciples say, Lord, at this time, will You set up Your kingdom? They still were waiting for Him to set up an earthly kingdom. And what He could have done was got frustrated and said, how many times do I have to tell you? But he simply gently and kindly turned. You can read this in Acts chapter 1. And he said to his disciples, It is not for you to know the days, the hours, or the seasons that the Father alone hath in His hands. Someone says Jesus could come today, say amen. If someone says Jesus is coming today, say heretic. The Bible says no man knoweth the day or the hour, not even the Son, but the Father which is in heaven. He could come today, but He also could come 10 days from now or 10 years from now. He's merciful. He's letting people come. He's calling them to salvation. But John the Baptist says, why is he not fulfilling this? He's not taking the throne. And it caused him to doubt the fact that Jesus was God, that He was the Messiah. A couple of thoughts. Doubts are normal for any of us. We're all sinners. John the Baptist was a sinner. And may I point this out, at least he was doubting something he already believed in. In order for you to actually doubt something, you kind of have to believe it in the first place to then have these kinds of doubts that he had, which is, wait a minute, do I really have this right? 1 John 5.13 was written to the church, and the entire epistle of 1 John falls in line with this verse. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. God wants us as Christians to have the assurance of our salvation. Meaning that sometimes we're going to doubt and we're going to have to look at the Word of God, look inward and look outward and say, yes, I see evidences that I am a child of God. When I sin, He chastises me. I feel the witness within of the Holy Spirit. I feel conviction of my sin. I have a love of the brethren and some of those other things that the Bible talks about. Often my dad, when people would come, our pastor emeritus, and say, I'm doubting my salvation, I don't know. He'd say, well, let's cover the facts of what the Bible says. Do you know what it says? And if you have doubts, then why don't we one more time just go ahead and call upon the name of the Lord and make sure you're saved. Someone said, well, if the door is locked and you're in bed trying to fall asleep and you're, you're saying, did I lock the door? 
One way you can do it is get up and go check. And then you have peace of mind. And I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation or saying we have to pray twice. But sometimes we have those questions about was I too young and when did I get saved? We need to make sure that we know that on the day of our salvation we understood the gospel and we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And in reading this week, people kind of disagree and they tend. most people tend to think that that verse is saying you have salvation, now put it into practice. Work it out. So whether you want to use that verse or not, 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you except ye be reprobates. So sometimes we may have a doubt and that's normal, but look at the promises. Look at what the Bible says. Make sure you understood. Make sure that you're saved. And then give your doubts to God. Notice a couple things about how John the Baptist handled his doubt. First of all, he was willing to admit even to people who were designated as his followers, to people who we would say ranked under him, he was willing to admit to them that he was having doubts. Perhaps we can get a good example there of sometimes we think, well, I can't admit to people about this struggle. I can't admit to people about this sin or about this doubt because I'm too important. But don't be afraid to tell people what you struggle with. Don't be afraid to get help. Don't be afraid to think, well, because I'm the leader, I've got to always pretend that I'm perfect because let me tell you, that's not true for anyone. Then what did John do with his doubt? He went to Jesus. He went to Jesus. It's almost as if he was saying, Lord, I believe in you. I proclaimed you are the Messiah. And I'm having my doubts because of this being in prison, because of maybe my mental state, and because you're not fulfilling all of my expectations that I thought you were going to do. But Lord, I'm coming straight to you. And I just want you to tell me, did I miss something? Was I wrong? I'm not going anywhere else with my doubt. I'm going to Jesus Christ. And I want to know and be assured from you, did I miss something? Am I wrong? But if you tell me that you are God, I will accept it. I will continue to believe. As Christians, we can take great comfort in the fact that God was pleased with John the Baptist, not because he had no doubt, but because of the way he handled his doubt and because of the way he showed faith in spite of doubting. Our faith does not to be, have to be perfect for God to be pleased with us. We do not have to have a total lack of doubt. Rather, Jesus said in Matthew 17, 20, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as of a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. It's pretty cool to go and get mustard seeds from the store. And some have even taken it and putting just one of them in the cap of the pin, and you isolate it, and you set it on your finger, and it's so small you can barely even see it. Jesus did not say you have to have no doubt and perfect faith in order to see God work in your life and answer your prayers. Rather, He said, in spite of all your mountains of doubt and sin, have faith as a little dot, as a grain of mustard seed. And spiritually, through that faith, you will be able to move mountains and nothing shall be impossible unto you. One man in Mark 9.24 came to Jesus. His, his son was in trouble and was demon-possessed. And he cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. 
This is the cry of every heart sincere towards God. God, I cannot pretend I don't have doubts or unbeliefs or sins. It's here. It's present with me. I can't get rid of it. I believe in you. And please help the part of me that does not believe in you. That man got his prayer answered. That man got his son healed by Jesus Christ. Number one, John doubted. Number two, Jesus answered. Back in Matthew chapter 11, we might read from Mark chapter 6 one more time. If we have time, you might want to hold your place there. But let's go back to our text. Matthew chapter 11, we see how Jesus answered this doubting. Was he angry? Did he correct him? Did he say, I'm done with you, John? Let's see how he handled it. Matthew 11, verse 4, Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. Now, we know from the indication here, and then from Luke 7, 20 and 21, that in the exact same hour that the disciples came, that John's disciples came and expressed their doubt, Jesus did a whole bunch of things that He said, Go tell John what you saw have done. Therefore, what happened? They came to Jesus. They delivered the message. John is doubting. Are you really God? Are you really the Messiah? Or are we waiting for someone else? And as is God's way of dealing with things sometimes, He said, Tell you what, let's have you do. Go take a seat over here for just a moment. And we'll talk about this later. Sometimes we go to God with the most urgent of prayer requests. And He says, let's wait. See what I'll do. Keep serving me. Let's see over time whether or not I'm faithful. Wait. Wait is hard to do, but if we wait on the Lord, He will renew our strength and give us eagle's wings. Luke seven twenty one says in that same hour... He cured many of their infirmities. So in the hour while they're waiting, He does some things. What is it? Verse 5. Go tell John the things which you've heard and seen the last few hours. Verse 5. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached unto them. What did Jesus do while they were waiting? He did miracles. The heart of God was turned towards the heart of lost sinners who were suffering because of the sin that was brought into the world. And He looked and the people who came to Him, He did miracles. Blind people who had never seen had their eyes open. People who were crippled. He healed their legs so that they could walk. And many have suggested it seems like there's a progression of miracles in this verse. Yeah, it's pretty cool that, that people can see again and walk again and that leprosy is cleansed and deaf here. But then he says, and the dead are raised up. That's a pretty good thing. It's pretty cool if Jesus can heal your leprosy. It's pretty cool if Jesus can raise you from the dead. But then in this line of progression as to what is greater, he sums it up with a statement to tell John that is far greater than leprosy being cleansed or dead people being raised from the grave because those people he healed with their leprosy would still die someday. Those people who he rose from the dead like Lazarus would still die again physically someday. But he says a statement that's greater than all that. And the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Go tell John you see the miracles and then tell him that a bunch of poor people who are hungry for Jesus Christ are hearing the truth of the gospel. What was the point of miracles? Miracles wasn't just to feed a few people who were hungry. It wasn't just to make someone who was sick feel better in the few years of their life before they died. It was to... The, the Scripture says the first miracle Jesus did, He manifested forth His glory. He proved that He was God and that everything He said should be taken so importantly so and so seriously. So if the man who is doing these miracles says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. 
I'm the only way to heaven. Believe and receive me or else you'll be condemned to hell for all of eternity. Then we all had better listen to what He says and receive that gospel. I've said a lot recently about rich and, and poor and the poor people were receiving the gospel. I think I got details mixed up. But in Luke chapter 12, one said to Jesus, Divide the inheritance with me. Make my brother do the right thing and give me the money that our parents left that he's supposed to. Jesus said, Who has made me a divider over you? And then he told the story about the man who he said, Thou fool, this night shall thy soul shall be required of thee because he wanted to tear down barns and build bigger barns and get more and more wealth. Then when the rich young ruler came and thought he was self-righteous, but Jesus turned him away, that's when Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, but also told his disciples, yes, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It takes a miracle for any of us to get saved. Rich, poor, black, white, brown, doesn't matter. It's a miracle when God saves a soul. That was the answer they took back to John. And when we have our doubts, let's wait on God. Let's not bail on Him. Let's go directly to Him for the answer to our doubts. Remember the Bible is true. Remember the prophecies have always come true. Old Testament to new. Remember, God does not lie and He will keep His promises. Then he adds one more note to John. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. What is really contained in this verse is a subtle rebuke to John. He's saying, And blessed is anyone who won't be offended in me. That word, therefore, offended, from the Greek means, at, at its basic definition, translation would be to scandalize. It means to trip up, or to be ensnared in a trap, or it means to stumble, or to be Offended, And Jesus Christ Himself said that He would be a rock of defense. He would be a dividing line that would split families directly in half because some would receive Christ and follow Him and some would reject Him. But He's also telling John, don't be offended at me, don't stumble over me, don't doubt me. Just because I didn't do exactly what you thought I would do in the exact same way in time that you thought I would do it. Trust Christ. We won't read it for time's sake, but Mark chapter 6, verse 18 through 29. What happened to John? Did Jesus come riding in in a blaze of glory and break down the prison and set him out? He could have done that. He did that for other disciples. No, there was a wicked plot where Herodias, who was used to be with Herod's brother, but now was with Herod, was angry at John for what he had preached, and she sent her daughter into uh, Herod during his party and his celebration, probably when he was drunk, to dance a sensual dance and to gain his favor. And then he promised her, I'll give you whatever you want, up to half the kingdom. And her mother said, tell him, I want the head of John the Baptist brought to me in a charger. And Herod himself was sad because he feared killing John because of what the people would do. But because he'd made the promise, he followed through with it. And John the Baptist was beheaded as a martyr for the cause of Jesus Christ. Does that mean Herod won? Does that mean John lost? Does that mean God lost? There will come a day when every person will face God's judgment who is apart from Christ. 
There came a day where in the court of Herod, the Gospel gives us the account that they looked at Him when He spoke and they said, Behold, He is as a God. He speaks as if He's God Himself. And you know what Herod did? He didn't do anything. He was quiet. He liked being praised as God. He didn't rebuke the people. And the text says that He was devoured and eaten up with worms on the spot because God struck Him down. God doesn't act, deal that way with every single person, but He will judge all those who reject Him. The Bible says this in Revelation 6, 9, and 10. It gives us the picture in heaven when all judgment is about to be unloosed on the world. It says, And when He had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain from the Word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a long voice and said, O oh God, how long before You avenge us upon the earth for our blood that was shed? And he was about to. He was about to begin judgment. But many have looked at this verse and saw that as they were gathered around the throne, under the altar, at the place closest to God, where blood sacrifices used to be brought, there was a special, unique, and individual place given in heaven to those who had given their lives as a martyr for Jesus Christ. I don't know what rewards I'll have in heaven. I think compared to a lot of people, it's going to be pretty small. I think it'll be less than John the Baptist who got his head cut off. And I'll, I'll look at him and say, thank you for serving God. And this man was willing to go to the end. Not only that, but I don't care how big this church gets or how many people want to shake my hand or listen to my sermons on the internet. I think in heaven I won't be able to come close to someone who in Afghanistan nobody knows their name, but they knew Jesus Christ and were beheaded for their faith because they were not ashamed and had a Bible app on their phone and tried to proclaim the Word of God. Those people have not lost. God has not forgotten them. But in heaven they will have a special place near to the heart of God. You see, but he had to tell John, don't be offended at me if I don't answer your prayers in the way you want them answered. Trust me, I'm God. I'm sovereign. He sees the bigger picture. He was doing a far greater work for us to die for our sins than He would have done to take the throne. Let's run through the rest of this. Yes, John had to be willing to say, I must in decrease and he must increase, even if it means my life. Number three, Jesus commended John the Baptist. Verse seven, And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out in for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What is Jesus doing? He's praising this man who just expressed doubt in him because he loved him and he knew what a good servant he was in the death that he would die. He said, you didn't go out to see a reed shaken in the wind? What's that? That's someone who stands up to speak and one week says, well, yeah, we kind of sort of think that this is the Bible and it's the Word of God. But the next week, yeah, if that contradicts science, even though the Bible is clear, maybe the Bible was being metaphorical. Well, I used to preach on this as being wrong, but they're passing a law against it, so now I'll just back away. That's someone who goes back and forth, and he says, that wasn't what John was. You didn't see a reed blowing around with the wind, putting his finger in the air to see which way the wind was blowing. Rather, he looked with the... He didn't wear the fine clothing of one in a king's house. He wore the camel's hair, and he pointed his finger, and he preached it straight, and that's why you went to see him. And that for that, Jesus commended him. Verse 10... Verse 9, He was not just a prophet, He was more than a prophet. For this is He of whom it is written, Behold, I send My messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Isaiah 43 and Malachi 3.1 are fulfillment of these verses. He not only was a prophet, He was a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 11, 
Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. The greatest commendation that Jesus gave to anyone in all of the Scriptures, among those born of women, which is pretty much everyone, He said there's none greater than John the Baptist. Greater than anyone, perhaps, Acts 13.22, when he said, David was a man after mine own heart who fulfilled all my will. But remember, as the parable says in Matthew 25.21, there was a servant who came before the Lord and he said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Just remember, it's possible to please God. It's possible one day to get there, and not because of our righteousness, but because of His. And doubts and all, sins and all, live a life like David who sinned, but later God said, you fulfilled all my will. Live a life like John the Baptist where he had doubts, but Jesus said, you're the greatest prophet that has ever lived. It's possible to run our race and get to heaven one day and have God say, good job. Oh, that's my heart's desire this morning. I hope that that's yours. And then the second part of the verse, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John the Baptist was doing a good work for God, but in heaven they are there not because of their good works, but because of the righteousness of God. So in this verse, he's sort of splitting the physical realm, that which is born of women, to the spiritual realm, those who are in heaven clothed by God's righteousness. So he's saying it's not the works John did that makes him so great, because even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It's not about what we do, it's about what God has done. Verse 12 through 19, and we'll, we'll close out here. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violence take it by force. Number four, Jesus condemned the wicked. He commended John the Baptist. He condemned the wicked. Verse 12 says, The days of John the Baptist until now, which was a very short period of time. John appears in the wilderness, preaching that the Messiah is coming, that the Messiah is here. Now, just a short time later, John is in prison. But he says during this short period of time, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Some have tried to argue that this verse means that in order to get into the kingdom of God, we need to go against our sin nature and to come by force and get into the kingdom of God. I don't think it fits theologically, and from what I read, I don't think it fits from the way that the, the words are laid out in the text itself, the English, the Greek, different translations, whatever you look at. What it's saying is that people are coming against the kingdom of God, attacking it, and committing acts of violence against it, and they're trying to wipe it out by force. Verse 13, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. John's office was greater because all the other prophets said, The Messiah is coming. Then John said, The Messiah is here. Then what happens oftentimes? Escalation. We get Kevlar vest, they get bullet-piercing rounds. You start to attack evil more, and the evil comes back even stronger against you. So because Jesus was here, the spiritual activity went crazier, and the attacks came on and on and on. John the Baptist had his head cut off. Jesus was crucified. The eleven disciples, almost all of them, history says, were crucified for Jesus Christ. The violent came against it to take it by force. Don't be surprised if we face persecution. For many have. Verse 14. 
And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. I think I taught two full messages on just this subject before. But Malachi 4.5 says that before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, God would send Elijah the prophet. Therefore, when John the Baptist or Jesus came on the scene, some people said, is that Elijah? And it, it, the ministry of John the Baptist and Elijah are linked because they said John the Baptist comes in the power and spirit of Elijah. Elijah was said to be coming before God came to execute his judgment and John the Baptist came to say Jesus Christ is here. So it's the same type role of a forerunner. So some people think that that specific prophecy was figurative. That Elijah coming before the day of the Lord was only talking about John the Baptist and he fulfilled it. I take the different view because John the Baptist himself said, I'm not Elijah. It was in the spirit and power of Elijah, and Jesus said, he's Elijah, if you receive it. I believe that in Revelation chapter 11, when you see the two witnesses coming to proclaim, judgment is here, repent, that one of them will actually be Elijah, and that specific prophecy will be fulfilled. John the Baptist fulfilled a similar role. For the two witnesses in Revelation will proclaim, accept Jesus as Savior, repent, and it will lead to a time eventually of national salvation when all Israel shall be saved. They will corporately, all the people, begin to realize Christ is the Messiah, repent, and be saved. If the people in the days of John the Baptist would have repented and received Christ, then they would have achieved that sort of national revival coming to Christ. He could have fulfilled that role, but they rejected the message that said, Receive the Messiah. Verse 15, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. When Jesus says that, it means it's really important. Listen up. Don't just have ears, but have ears that are specifically dedicated to hearing the message of God. Verse 16 through 19, and I am done. But whereunto shall I liken this generation, the generation that rejected Christ? It is likened to children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you and have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. We have piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you and you have not lamented. In other words, it's like kids in the marketplace. And they're like, what do you want to do? Oh, I don't know. I don't feel like doing anything. Let's play the music and dance. And they sit there and go, no, we're not going to dance. And they say, okay, let's play funeral and I'll mourn. And they say, no, we're not going to do that. No matter what we do, you're not happy. Verse 18, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous, a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Whatever was presented unto them, they rejected Christ, they rejected John the Baptist, not because there was something wrong with every prophet and with all that John did or what Jesus did, but as someone said, if there's a problem with every situation you ever go to, maybe the problem is you. It was their heart, they were rejecting Christ, then Christ says, but wisdom is justified of her children. In other words, what is right will be known over time and will come to pass, and you will know whether or not the tree was good by whether or not the fruit was good. Matthew fourteen twelve says that after John was beheaded, his disciples came and took his body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Why did they go to Jesus, first of all, when John was killed? Because they knew that the most important thing to John in his life was Jesus Christ. They knew that though he went through a time of doubt, he believed. 
And they went to Jesus and followed Him. Because though He doubted, He handled it the way God would want Him to. And God heard His doubt and commended Him as one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless now as we have a brief time of prayer before we are dismissed. Help us, Father, to look to You in our times of doubt and to be encouraged by the fact that though we may doubt, You can still be pleased with our life if we will come to You for the answers and continue on in faithful service to You. Bless now as we have a brief time of prayer before we are dismissed.